0: Everybody, Doug Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs of life. Today, I have with me Neil Gray. Neil, it's good to have you here with us, and um, I'm glad that you could pencil me in in your busy day. Hmm. So, Brad is your cousin, so I met you through Brad as a Facebook friend, and uh, Brad was like. Uh, he needs a lot of help. And I, and I was like, um, okay. So um, then we got to talking. I think we got in a few theological conversations. But the first time we met in person uh, was a Saturday morning or actually a Friday night when I came and looked at yeah. some of your plumbing, yes. you know, because everybody knows I'm a plumber, right? right? Yeah. And so uh, we we worked all of that out together, got it done. Hopefully you've You've patched the hole so nobody could see my. It looks perfect. My, my redneck in your, yeah, in yeah. engineering there. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where you were raised? Were you raised here in Little Rock, or tell us a little about about growing up?
1: So I grew up in Southwest Little Rock, Landmark. It's uh, out towards the East End in that area, I had a pretty normal childhood. Mom, Dad, brother. Grew up in church. We had a little couple of acres off of off the road where my grandparents live right down the trail from me my brother when he grew up he lived uh, up on the road i mean we were just we were just all real close-knit family right off the road and so I grew up in church grew up right down the road going to school I mean, everything went pretty normal childhood up
0: and up until college somewhere around there okay so you had a younger brother older brother older brother four okay. years older all right and so now you're your dad is an avid hunter, fisherman, or is that your uncle? That's fine. Okay. Cause I get all of you That's Brad's dad. He's I get a, all of you mixed up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, he's Brad's whole side of his family is avid hunters. My dad was, uh, was definitely an avid fisherman. Okay. But yeah, no, they're always in the,
0: in the deer woods. Okay. So are you the hunter or the fisherman or the stay out of trouble? Yeah. Um, really, I, I mean, I'll, I'll fish here and there.
1: Actually, Brad and, uh, and Uncle Ronnie, his dad, are supposed to take me to the deer woods for the first time. I've actually never been to the deer woods. I do a lot of dove hunting with some buddies, but that's—, that's Do you do any extent. duck hunting here? I have never actually been duck hunting either.
0: I haven't either, but it's kind of like golf. It's too expensive to enjoy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. So uh you graduated Guess high school moved into college. Where did you go to college at? I started at UCA. Okay. Yeah. Um, I started at Arkansas Tech. So you know, uh, we would we would mock the UCA fight song to sing UCA sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so did you finish college there?
1: No. Um, man, I ended up. I went to UCA. To Pulaski Tech. Um, went to UALR. I actually finished. At UALR, is
0: okay. I finish,
1: yeah. And you have a degree in advertising and marketing, okay.
0: And so, and that's what you do now is you you're a salesman, uh, yeah. for Pella, for Pella. Pella uh, yeah. And if they want to pay us for that plug, we'll sure, be I'm more sure than happy. Will, I'll
1: send the bill. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I
0: thought you know we could we could plug Brad a little bit, but I know he's not going to pay anything <laughs> to us. For, yeah, for that, Brad but. is a uh, he's
1: a social media. Entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, he knows how to use the the free resources yeah. available to him. Hey,
0: well, I mean, that that just kind of is fits his style though. Yeah. 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 So um you said everything was normal until you kind of got into college. So tell me a little bit about what happened there.
1: So yeah, I played basketball my whole life and baseball. My dad coached me in my whole life. It was actually in between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college i was playing in a semi-league or semi-pro league downtown little rock basketball went up for a layup before the game just you know layup drills before the game went up for a layup and when i landed I couldn't breathe. Something took my breath away and I could feel something, something was really wrong. And uh, my dad was there. So I went over there and got him and he drove me home and I was just holding myself up off the seat the whole way. I couldn't put any pressure on my back. And uh, when I got home, he drug me out of the car. My legs just almost went completely numb and paralyzed and found out that I had herniated a disc in my back. Mm. So... That's uh. That's so just when from landing
0: changed. Just from landing.
1: Yeah, the doctor said that you know from working out my whole life and playing basketball and all. He said it was, it, it was inevitable. Like at some point that was going to herniate.
0: So you have just proven to the listeners that if you don't work out and you don't play basketball and you sit around and fat and sassy mm-hmm. like me, that you'll live longer. That's that was my intent. And yeah. and less pain. Yeah. Yeah. That was my intent. Yeah. So did you have to have surgery or anything like that? Yep.
1: Yeah. I had actually ended up having two back surgeries. Um, After the first one, uh, it it was worse. Like he, the scar tissue started wrapping around everything. The disc re-herniated and a a cyst developed on my sciatic nerve where the disc was pushing. So literally like everything that could possibly go wrong with the surgery went wrong and uh, it was miserable. So six months after that, he got me back in for a second surgery and the second surgery did the trick. I mean, it, it worked.
0: Okay. So it was one of those things where it only moved when you hurt. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. So, uh, but you were in between high school and college. So did you just kind of spend that summer recuperating or did you have to miss a semester of college or?
1: Yeah, I, I missed, I think I missed my second semester of college. So I'm, I moved up to, to UCA, moved out of the house for the first time right after my Actually, right after my first surgery, so I was just still in quite a bit of pain there. But then I came back, and had my second surgery. I think I ended up taking a semester off, but uh, then moved back out there after
0: that. Okay, so then you said the the second ter- surgery did the trick. Did that alleviate all the pain? Physical therapy mm-hmm. helped with that.
1: Yeah, I did physical therapy for you know a few months after that to strengthen the muscles. And but yeah, after that, I mean, I was fine. It it completely took the pain away
0: okay so then then moving into college um, what happened there that that really kind of curved your life
1: So I didn't tell the doctor that it alleviated my pain. I told him that I was still in a ton of pain and up until my back surgery, playing basketball in, in high school, growing up the way I did, if you asked me I wouldn't have told you that I, I'd lacked anything you know I was I was content and happy I had a bright future ahead of me but, when I woke up in the hospital with that morphine pump in my arm, like I, I, Found what I had been missing. You know, like I knew that, that I was in love and this, this is what I needed. So after that surgery, he gave me an unlimited prescription of painkillers. And it you know said unlimited refills on the bottom. Mm-hmm. This was back in 2000. So they just, the regulation wasn't there. And, and it was, I, I refilled that pain, that pain pill bottle five times in one month, nine, 90 count pain pills, five mm-hmm. times in one month, the same pharmacy. They never batted an eye. For four years, I was telling the doctor that it was still killing me. My back was hurting. I kept going back for appointments and all this, and he just kept feeding me pain healers until finally he realized after about four years that I was lying to him. And, you know, kind of he cut me off after that.
0: Yeah, because it, it kind of really is difficult to be able to tell if somebody's actually in pain or not, sure. especially when it comes to the spine. You said in that second, was it the second surgery where you got the morphine that you just really?
1: No, it was it was the first one. Yeah, first okay. surgery. I was it, I was hooked pretty much immediately.
0: Okay, had you had addiction issues before, or something where you just had to have it? No, no whether no. it was substance or activity. Or I mean, you just had to do it.
1: Possibly. And you know, I was, I was 18 or 19 when I hurt myself. So up until that point, I had, I think I'd smoked, you know, a few cigarettes, drinking with some buddies, you know, on the weekends in high school. And, uh, but no, there was no indication that I was just going to you know, grab onto something and never let go.
0: Right. Now, morphine to me, it just makes me sick. I mean, I wouldn't take it if it was given to me. You right. know, it just, and, and, you know, with some people, it, it really kind of takes you into this euphoric land. Is Mm -hmm. that, is that what it did for you?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't morphine was just an introduction to it, but you know, I I got into oxycodone and, and you know, the oxycontin, hydrocodones, those were, those were my drug of choice. And of course that's what I was prescribed after
0: that. So when you were cut off from the doctor, what happened?
1: I was scared to death. First time in my life, I felt, you know, just utter fear. I had to figure out a way, you know? And so I did, Um, I started dealing drugs, you know, I'd met of course a ton of people who liked them as well throughout my four years. And so I had a ton of connections by then. So I started dealing drugs. I had a buddy who worked at a pharmacy and, um, and he was also an addict. And so we worked out a deal and, you know, by the time the DEA caught up to us, which was I think two, about two and a half years after we started, We had stolen something like 60,000 painkillers from from the pharmacy and several thousand Xanax and just a whole bunch of narcotics from that pharmacy.
0: So how do you know that you have this problem and then meet other people and it become kind of recreational without with you still really needing it? How does that like, how do you come to somebody and say, hey, I've got some pain medicine, and it really makes me feel good. Do you want one? Right. I mean, is it, is it really that simple?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, you know, especially when we first started, you know, because nobody knew the dangers of it. We were kids, and, you know, I had a bunch of painkillers, and people would come over to parties, and I'd start handing them out, just passing them out to people. And there would be some people who, you know, oh, yeah, man, I'll get some more of those. and And then people that would just blow my mind would, you know, said so they stay the night. They would leave in the morning, and they would just leave without asking me for more of them. And that just that blew my mind. Like how how do you not want more of these, man? Right. You know, because I was I'd pass them out, mm-hmm. but it was just that always blew my mind. As how does somebody would just leave without asking for more?
0: Right. And so at that point in time when you were. You, you were partying, had you come to a point of where you tried to get off of it and you experienced the DTs and that's why you wanted more? Or was it more of just, I want more of that feeling?
1: So uh, my addiction lasted almost 19 years for the first, I'd say, half a decade.
0: Now, you're not old enough to have had an addiction I am. since 18. I'm 40. yeah. Well, you you look younger than me and, <laughs> and I'm 37. Oh, so. uh, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, no. I've, Maybe yeah. I need to take some painkillers. <laughs> there you go. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, sit
1: around, get fat, and happy, and yeah. take some painkillers. Yeah.
0: my lessons in life. Mm-hmm. Were you g- coming off the DTS and yeah. then having to get back on, or were yeah, you just yeah, wanting yeah. that euphoric state?
1: Yeah. So for the first, you know, several years, it was just fun. I mean, that was it. So I don't remember actually feeling withdrawal because, and again, I had unlimited pain pills for four years. I never had withdrawals because I never didn't have them. You know, so I mean, I would literally I got. It escalated so quickly that, I mean, right off the bat, within a couple of weeks of getting those painkillers, moving up to, to college, I was taking, you know, it says take two to four every four to six hours. I was taking 10 or 15 of them every hour or two. Every hour or two. And then I would wake up in the middle of the night and take a handful of them, like go to pee in the middle of the night. i just take a handful and go back to sleep. You know, I wouldn't feel them. I just had them, so why not? And it was like that for at least four years. I just I had them so I could take as many as I wanted. Um, after that, I had the the – you know, my buddy that worked at the pharmacy. So I had as many as I wanted and never ran out again. And so for, you know, six or seven years, it was just fun. It was just a ton of fun. And I never really had the bad parts of it. But after, after the DEA popped him and, and I had to figure out other ways to do it. And then it got, you know, I ended up, kind of in the streets more, you know, and I became an actual drug dealer where I was dealing with a ton of other drug dealers and it, uh, it just became much more dangerous. And then, you know, those are the times when I started running out of stuff and I'd have to figure out a way. And then I realized like, and just how much trouble I was in because those, those, that detox, man, it's, it's no joke. I mean, mm. you're already addicted enough in your head, you know, even if there was no physical symptoms, it's a, it's a terribly difficult thing to break. But man, those, when you wake up every morning and you're, you just have these, intense flu symptoms come over you and you know that there's a way to fix this. You know, there's a way not to be sick and you're going to do just about anything you have to do to do it. And that's,
0: that's kind of where I was. Right. I had a friend, uh, in high school, we were really good friends. He played basketball too. And when I moved back from North Carolina, uh, his mom called me, wanted me to come talk to him that he was uh, hooked on painkillers and he had been going to a Suboxone clinic uh, going through that kind of treatment and it just, it wasn't working. So i talked to him, talked him into going to rehab, which he had never gone to rehab before. He's just doing the Suboxone. He said, yes, I will go to rehab, but I need to go by my grandmother's house because I've got these pair of shoes or whatever that I wanted. Well, on the way to the rehab, I noticed that he was high. He had gone to his grandmother's gotten to her stash of pain pills. And I'm like, dude, you just agreed that Mm -hmm. you needed help. And I was taking you, and you had me detour so that you could get pain medicine yeah. i mean how what is the process there i mean from from your point of view what and I'll say this, I can't understand because I've never dealt with this myself, sure, so what is the thought process there so first of all, man, listen
1: i I've been clean for about 4 years now. And even me, man, I, you know, I still work with a lot of ministries and guys that are in addiction and I, and even me I'm like, dude, just stop. Like just stop doing that. What are you doing? You're ruining your life. And like I was just there. And so I understand it's hard to understand for people. That's not, but it it has such a grip on you. And when when you're in it, it it's it. Like that's it. That's all your life is about. It's it's can I get my medicine first? Can I get, can I keep from getting sick? And then I'll figure out everything else. You know, then I'll figure out my family. Then I'll figure out my job. But that's, it is first and everything. There's nothing that comes before that. Especially once you get that far down the road, man, where you've been doing it long enough and you're, your brain is just, is, is locked into it. You know, that you've created these pathways in your brain that tell you that this is normal, this is what you have to do first. And then you can live your life after that. So when you're taking your buddy to, to rehab, he's thinking my life is over. So, you know, I've I've only got a few more hours before I'm, I'm done. So I need to, I gotta get something in me before that. I mean, that's, that's his, all he's thinking.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, have you been into rehab, or re- did you do some kind of medical detox, or how did that all transpire for you?
1: No, so I went to the ranch, uh, Renewal Ranch mm-hmm. in Conway. So that's a it's a year long faith based recovery facility uh, where they take you out of the world and they pop you on this uh, this campus for the first at the ranch, uh, yeah, at in the ranch, yeah, at, at, on a ranch, basically, yeah, and uh, the fr- it's for six months. You only see your family every or on Saturdays for a couple hours on Saturday. Days. Other than that, you were stuck there. I had never done rehab. I was, and now I was exceptionally good at hiding everything. Even even when I was stealing, you know, stealing from my parents and my wife and pawning all their stuff. Like I it was a full time job. I worked very hard at you know. St- Keeping myself where I wasn't sick all the time, but also keeping it hidden enough to where they wouldn't intervene and make me go to
0: rehab or make me, you know, just. So did they, did your wife and parents know you were addicted at that point?
1: Yeah, they did. Um, I, I kept it from my wife. I mean, she was with me the whole time. So we've been together 17 years, I think, and we've been married for 11 years. Actually, on Saturday, it was 11 years. She always thought for the longest, you know, yeah, he likes to party. He likes to have a good time. But, you know, she had no idea it was that big of a problem. About five years before I got clean, so the last five years of my addiction, she knew it was getting really bad. She she found a Discover Discover credit card bill that I ran up like $8,000 in cash advances. And uh, that's when she realized that, well, this is much worse than, than I thought it was. And so for the last five years... Of uh, my addiction in our marriage was it was tough, man. It was you know it was just me lying all the time and her knowing I was lying, but you know not wanting to leave or. or- holding out hope and then she got pregnant and we got pregnant with the twins and you know, she was just stuck. They're the <laughs> cutest little kids, by the way. <laughs> yeah. They're wild. But they're cute, but they're wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, she got pregnant with them and then she was just stuck, you know, in her head and in, in mine. I, I'm sure I used it to keep her there. I knew that she would stay now. Towards the end, man, we would, she'd catch me using or she'd catch me using or lying or stealing, or she would find some drugs, or she would catch me you know, in, in some kind of big lie. And uh, depending on the night or the day, she would scream at me or cry or try and tell me to leave or beg me to just let her go. And man, I would just... It got to the point where i'd heard it enough and i just i was already so ashamed of myself and so sick of my life and i would just stand there while she would cry with just this blank look on my face and i would just watch her cry and i just i couldn't feel anything anymore you know i was just done with done with everything i was so sick of my life
0: so you were you were basically numbed to any emotion yeah. any outside Oh, uh, absolutely so so would those times where you would use would you stop for a moment and say if i do this my wife's going to find out and then she's going to be mad was there ever that guilt and shame that oh, that came in there every day yeah i mean it, you know when i go to bed every night i
1: would say all right tomorrow i'm not doing this anymore like i'm going to i'm going to fix this i'm not going to get high tomorrow you know whatever it is i'm not going to steal i'm not going to hurt anybody else and but i knew i knew i would and i mean it's what addiction does is it makes you, it, it bullies you. Like you're, you know, you bully yourself. So like, I, I wanted so bad for this to be over with and I didn't want to do this anymore. But at the same time, like I knew what I was about to do tomorrow and I hated myself for it. I mean, I hated it. And I knew I was about to let everybody down again. And I, you know, I was just, I was just so sick of myself, but I was so scared of what I would do next. you know it was me who was deep in there somewhere, the actual real me, you know, knew that I was about to do something terrible, but I didn't want to anymore. I was sick of it. I wanted to do right, but I just, I knew I wouldn't allow that.
0: Mm. Going to Renewal Ranch. Now I've had a little bit of contact with that ministry, but not a whole lot. But from, from looking at their guidelines, they are tremendously strict mm. as to where I had uh, a client once that went to um, an inpatient rehab in Circe and I won't call the name because there's only one there, so. <laughs> yeah, um, I know it is. And yeah. so he was in there for maybe, I mean, he was there for the detox part and I went and saw him and he was high as a kite mm-hmm. and I'm going, bro, where are you getting drugs at? And he was like, there, I can get them here. Yeah. And I'm going in a rehab center, you know? And so what is broken with that side of the system? That that you can still have access there.
1: Man, it's it's same thing in prisons. You know, in prisons, you it's you can find drug dealers all day. NA was kind of the same situation for me. Um, you know, Narcotics Anonymous, but you know, I always called it New Acquaintances. Mm. That's, that's really all it was. You know, there's new new drug dealers that I would meet. People who, you know, on one night would come and really had it in their head. You know, I'm going to get clean. I'm going to this is going to work. I'm going to get out of this life. And uh, But at the same time, you're, they're coming in with 20 other people who are doing the exact same thing. And the next night, who knows what they're going to be thinking. So now, they, now we get to know each other, and you know, we've got all new connections now.
0: Right. I had a church member one time that was an alcoholic and went to AA. And he said, man, going to AA just makes me want to drink. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing all of these stories from all these other people— just made me want to get drunk. Yeah. Now, typically with addiction, painkillers, whether it be painkillers, whether it be alcohol, whether it be pornography, whatever that addiction is, typically we are feeding that to ourselves to repress something else. Mm-hmm. Was there at, at some point where you noticed that it was a repression or was it just that you got hooked on that feeling?
1: Well, both. Um, it was hooked. You know, I was hooked for the for the first good while of it. But, you know, once you live that life for long enough, you start letting people down, you start lying to people, breaking people's hearts, say it's, this shame is overwhelming. So yeah, you have to do something to numb that pain, numb that shame and guilt that you feel. And, you know, because you feel so much shame and guilt that you just, you don't want to feel that for, you know, all the time and you will. So and you just tell yourself, "This is the kind of person you are now." It's just, "This is who I am now." I'm doing what I have to do. They should understand this, and it's not my fault.
0: Because to you, in in some way, as the addict, it's no more different than somebody taking a Tylenol because they have a headache. Right. I need to take this so that I can be normal of so, who I am. Yeah. That's,
1: that's exactly what you know, what you hear, man. I, I got to take this so I can be normal. I got to take this so that I can get through the day so that I can function normally. Because mm-hmm. if you know, if I don't have this, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm going to be sick and I'm going to screw up the whole day. I'm going to screw up at my job. So I have to get high to, to do my job today.
0: So how are you able to go to school and be productive while being high? Well, that's the only time I could be productive was when I
1: was high. You know, after after a little bit, that was it. So, you know, like I said, I had a ton of pain pills, unlimited. So, it's it would have been different if you know if I was running out all the time and had to, had to fend for myself. But you know, I was just I was fed them from the doctor while I was at school. Mm-hmm.
0: And and from what I what I understand, thankfully, at no point during that were you uh incarcerated or anything like that for selling no nope. or or distributing or no nope. even possessing no nope. no nope.
1: for i mean i'd committed probably several thousand felonies you know in those eight 19 years but you know i was i was blessed uh, unbelievably so to but to that not is not a confession in to any one no no that, no. that may be <laughs> right. yeah, still within the limits
0: of uh statutation right of, yeah that's you true know. good point thank you yeah so Typically, there would be a doctor client privilege here, but since this is on a <laughs> right. podcast, I don't think that works. Yeah, that yeah way. I was so, just kidding anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Your name really isn't Neil Gray, <laughs> right. is it? Yeah. Yeah. No. I definitely don't work for the company. I, yeah. <laughs> I learned earlier. <laughs> yeah. It was Bella, right? Yeah. Bella. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah. And they do roofs and stuff, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, why, why do you think that you were able to get away with it without getting caught? I mean, like I said, man, uh, you know,
1: Pure luck, first of all, or, and for a while, for a while I was, it was legal because I was given these pain pills, you know, it was, it was a, pres- a prescription, but after that, man, I, the grace of God, I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, cause I had seen you know, all my buddies around me were, were getting caught, going to jail and I should, I was, it's not, it's not like I was careful. You know, I was, I was as reckless as they come. And even my buddies, you know, of course that had been caught before would be riding with me like, dude, you've got to slow down or dude, you, why are, you can't take that with you. And, you know, I was like, I'm fine, man. It's no big deal. So I wasn't careful. You know, I just, just never got popped.
0: Uh, what was it like at the point where the doctor came to you and said, Neil, you can't have this much anymore. Did yeah. he say, I think you've got a problem and maybe you need treatment or was it just, I'm not going to give this to you? No, anymore"?
1: it was, it was, I'm going to write your prescription for sets, which were about half the strength. And, and then I'm cutting you off. I'm not giving you any And I mean, he, he didn't take time to explain it or break it to me gently. That was it. And mm-hmm. So he gave me one little prescription of those to, to wean myself off of my four years long addiction and you know, I should have been good after that, but yeah. somehow
0: it wasn't. So was that kind of during the time where the, the the push of the war on drugs started then to really take effect and, yeah. and doctors were beginning to be concerned?
1: Yeah, there started to be a lot more heavy, heavily regulated um, use of, of pharmaceuticals around that time. Yeah. And it's, it wasn't difficult to, to find them still because I'd, I'd known, you know, got to know a lot of people who got steady prescriptions of them, met a lot of old people that, um, you know, poor old people that didn't, didn't want to take them, but needed money. And so that worked out well for me. It wasn't really as difficult, but you know, it wasn't as consistent as just having my own prescription.
0: Right. So tell me about the day that you said, okay, I, I need help. Never,
1: never once. I never no nope. i uh I didn't I had it all under control and by the time it got out of control i uh I was I was so full of shame and guilt you know I had had 18 month old babies twins at home uh I had a, a amazing wife and never done anything but good by me you know mom and dad saying I mean everything man I just I got to the point where I couldn't change. I tried, I tried to go get the suboxone route that you mentioned earlier. went to a doctor to get that. And I tried several things. I tried NA and all this. And so, I mean, I, I you know, I knew I had a problem, but I, I never thought like, I can't handle it. You know, like, uh, eventually, I'll I'll get past this. But then I got to the point where I guess it sunk in that I, I couldn't get past this, that it wasn't going to work. And I figured to myself, you know, I tried N.A., I tried this doctor out, I've tried these other other things to, to try and get clean, and I can't. And I'm sick of letting my family down. And so I ended up trying to take my life uh, a couple times. Instead, God threw me in a jail cell. I got arrested. Of all things for shoplifting um, because towards the end, I, I got on meth as well. I, I've, one of the smartest things I'd ever done was uh, decided to get off of painkillers by starting to use meth instead. I'd heard other people try this. so
0: Which isn't uncommon. Right. No, at not at
1: all. Not at all. Because, and so when I tried meth, I realized that uh, uh, I wasn't feeling the detox symptoms as bad from, from opiates. So it actually worked. <laughs> I got off of... Opiates, and I started doing meth pretty much full time, several times a day, for about probably about probably about two months, and then I just brought the pain pills back into the fold, and I was doing both of them all the time, you know, several times a day. So once I started doing meth, man, I started shoplifting because. It just makes you it makes you crazy and i started shoplifting every store i got to have a pocket full of cash and i'd walk into a store and like i'm gonna steal something you know whatever it is i'm gonna put something in my pocket and leave out of here and i have no idea why but i just i never went anywhere without stealing something shoplifting
0: so what was the thing you stole when you got caught (laughs) it
1: was a a scale Uh, i broke my wife's scale in the bathroom uh, like a month or so before and I was wearing basically this, just a, a T-shirt and jeans. And uh, I went into, to Coles and come to the find The worst out.
0: place to go shopping.
1: <laughs> right Everybody knows that. <laughs> Everybody knows that but me. And every time I tell that story, like, dude, why did you steal from Coles? you stupid? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I just went in there and I traded at my shoes. I took some old hard black penny loafers and traded those in for some new, a new pair of their shoes and just put my own mine in their box and switched them. And then I walked over and saw a scale on my way out. So I just tucked it up under my shirt, literally just poking out the sides of my shirt. It was wider than I was. I just put my arms over it and started, started walking out the door. And this big old dude came running around, put his hands up. And I said, yep, yep, you're right, man. Here you go. And just handed it to him immediately. He's like, come on, let's go in here. He went there. He called the cops and went to jail.
0: And so you stayed in there for a couple of hours before somebody come bonded you out? Or? Nobody
1: bonded me. You no, know, they, uh, eight hours. It was, it, <laughs> yeah, I was in there for eight hours. It felt like a, a month. And, uh, like I was just, you know, I, and again, I started detoxing and I was just on all these drugs and meth and I was, just, I was banging on the walls in there, like telling them that I need to, I should be out by now. you know, like an hour in and I'm pretty sure that's why I ended up staying for eight. I probably would have been out a couple of hours, but
0: did, did anybody know you were there?
1: Not for the first five or six hours, and then they uh, they let me call somebody, and so I called my brother. Um, I actually did try and call my wife. They don't, uh, they still don't believe I tried to call my wife first, but because I not she wasn't going to be real excited to hear from me. But, um, but I tried her once and the phone wouldn't, wouldn't go through. So I called my brother and, uh, he ended up coming to pick me up.
0: And what was his first
1: words when, when you got out into was, his car? He wasn't surprised. Um, He's like, oh, I think he asked me if I'd talked to Rebecca yet, and I said, nope,
0: <laughs> nope.
1: Let's just take me home, dude. I'll talk to her when I get there.
0: Yeah. And, you you said, w- how about we just act like this didn't happen? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it was, man. Like, he he knew how bad off I was, and he's like, dude, have you talked to Rebecca? Have you talked to mom and dad? And I'm like, no, let's just just take me home. It's been a long night. I'm gonna go to sleep, and then we'll deal with this tomorrow. I'll yeah, put
0: it off. So if you if you didn't have that moment where you said, okay, I've got to get help. Mm-hmm. What put you in motion to go to the ranch?
1: Getting arrested. So, so when I got arrested, mom, uh, my mom and dad and Rebecca.
0: And this is the Coles incident. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's the only time I've ever been in jail. So they started looking around and found uh, found the ranch for me. And you know, my mom said that she she saw. She always kind of looks on the bright side when it comes to me, anyway. And she said that she saw this as a cry for help, and so. Um,
0: which, looking back, it was.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah.
0: I mean, honestly, man, I'm not gonna.
1: I was somewhat relieved to to just be taking it out because I mean, I was just I was spiraling. I didn't know where I was going to land, and uh, it just felt good for somebody else to kind of take control for a minute, mm-hmm. and get it out of my hands. But, but yeah, so they found the ranch, um, and when I got out of jail, they're were like, "We're going up here. You're interviewing there." And. And that's it. You're, that's what's happening. Or Rebecca's leaving. And she's taking the kids with her and I lose what I what little I've been able to hold on to up at this point.
0: And you believe that?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, she was. Yeah, she was about gone anyway. She was so sick of it. And you know, she is like I said. It was just the kids. You know, we had had eighteen month old kids at home, and I actually was at home all the time when I was supposed to be. I did most of my running around during the day you know, from eight to five when I was supposed to be working, but. I was usually at home with the kids the and by then I would found something for the night and I could actually be there with, you know, take care of the kids and help with them. But, you know, twins is a big deal and going thinking you're going to leave and have to be a single mom's really difficult decision. So I was able to kind of, I guess, play on that fear of hers and keep her around. And
0: mm-hmm. So did you, did you have the fear of, of people just, not just your wife, but people just saying, just writing you off and saying, well, he, we just aren't going to put up with him anymore, whether it be family or your mom or dad or close friends that you may have had.
1: Not so much my parents, man. Like, and like this was this is when they realized that. When I got arrested, was the moment that they realized how bad it was. You know, I, was, I had been pretty good, even though I was, I'd steal some stuff and pawn their stuff, and I'd always get it back and make some excuses about it. I you know, need some money for, it. and they just wanted to believe it so bad. You know, they just didn't want to believe what was really happening. So that's the moment I got arrested was when they realized, well, this is much worse than, and we're letting ourselves believe.
0: What- was probably way worse than what oh yeah they were letting themselves <laughs> yeah. believe. Yeah, it
1: was way they had no idea. They had no idea I'd been using needles mm-hmm. and I'd been doing that for Right, eight years at that point, and I mean every every kind of drug imagine, Yeah, they had no idea how yeah. bad it was.
0: So Renault Ranch, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't do any type of medical detox. You're just thrown in there. Right. So what was that detox like for you?
1: Thirty five days. Thirty. I was sick for thirty five days. I didn't sleep the first nine days I was there. And typically they want you to go somewhere uh, and get detox. Like, you can go to the, you know, the hospital and get detox for a few days and whatever before you go. But I just kept using uh, up until the day, actually my, the day, the second day I was there was the first day I didn't use because mm. I took some with me, but yeah, I was, I went up there and of course I'd been taking Suboxone to going to the doctor for Suboxone. usually I would just get to Suboxone and, and trade that for the the drugs that I wanted. And so, but I would keep some for the days that I would I couldn't find anything and they did help you know but Suboxone gets in your bones and that that stuff stays in your system for a long time so that that's what drew it out for so long but you know for the first 2 weeks I was really sick going up and not sleeping and it was just it was it was bad And honestly, physically, it was probably the worst that it's ever been. But in my head, it wasn't because I knew that it was actually going to end this time, you know, that I was going to get past this. And just knowing that without the option of going and getting a fix and making it last longer now, just knowing that this would actually end, man, it's so peaceful. Just knowing that, all right, this finally is actually going to end
0: now. And having a support system there that had been through oh, that kind of hell, yeah, that you were dealing with right then,
1: yeah, you can talk to anybody there, and they've I mean, sure they have your exact story. you mm-hmm. know, so like they've been there and, hey, look at me, and I'm better now. you know you you will get better
0: now thirty five days, that kind of seems like a long time for for symptoms to stop from, yeah. from the dts yeah is that was is that normal?
1: Methadone and Suboxone. Um, Those—that's the stuff that gets in your bones. That's the stuff that lasts. That makes your DTS last forever. Opiate. If I was just on regular opiates, like oxycodone, um, it'd probably lasted two weeks. I mean, I would have probably been kind of fatigued for you know about a month. But um, the the nausea, nausea, and just sweats, and the just crazy fatigue, and all this—that—that that probably wouldn't last more than two weeks.
0: Gotcha. So at the ranch, um, they, of course it's a religious, it's a ministry. Mm -hmm. There's like a Bible study every day. Mm -hmm. And then is it like the first six months you, you're just in this intense therapy. And then after that they start putting you to work somewhere where you're kind of integrated back into society, I guess would be the best way to say.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, so the first six months you're on campus there and, Monday through Wednesday, you got five different, or about 15 different pastors that come and teach an hour long class. So you're in class. Wait, the pastor
0: preached just an hour? (laughs)
1: Yeah, right. Yeah,
0: yeah, they give them a book to teach out of They weren't Baptists then. (laughs)
1: Right, yeah, Yeah. absolutely not. Well, they wouldn't allow those at the ranch. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, so they would come and they would teach from eight to five, Monday through Wednesday. And then on Thursdays we would go serve. So they would have just these community projects. We'd go mow people's yards or, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so they would just, they would send groups out to uh, all the guys out to go serve the community on Thursdays and Fridays. Saturdays, we would have their chapel service and then our family could come to chapel service and hang out with us for a few hours afterwards. And then Sundays we, we would go to different churches every Sunday. We would do the, the, um, service at the church. Just cardboard testimonies, and somebody would give their, their full testimony. And mm-hmm. that was an average week at the ranch for the first six months. That's exactly what you do. After that, they move into some apartments, and you, you all stay in the same apartments. But you can get your car back, uh, you get a job, and you have a curfew every night. And you come back. You have Bible study twice a week, a check in once a week. Um, so yeah, you know, lots of accountability, random drug tests, things like that. But the, but you're kind of getting. Yeah, you know, slowly dipped back into, the, into right. the pool.
0: But it, but it is very strict. Mm-hmm. Once again, you yeah. don't break curfew. Right. You don't. Uh, but then the the consequence of that is what if you were to break curfew? curfew. Uh,
1: I mean, that, like, like I said, they're pretty strict, man. They don't. You don't get a whole lot of second chances to not get kicked out. You know, mm-hmm. you do something wrong like that because there's the. The thought is, and it's accurate, that there's somebody out there dying to get a bed right now. Yeah. And so if you're not gonna if you're not gonna go by the rules, if you don't mean this, then you know, we gotta give it to somebody else.
0: Right. Cause their waiting list right now is oh, is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So you get through that six month program, you get through the second six month program. And then how does that how does that work though now that you're in an apartment with others? and you're married and you have kids so yeah so yeah let me correct what what i said
1: if you're not married with kids, you move into the apartment, and and then you you know do all that. If you have a family, then you move back home and do your six months there. But you know, I still had to come back every for Bible studies twice a week, for check in once a week. Um, you know, which I was
0: like a forty five minute drive. Yeah, for yeah,
1: you. yeah. From Little Rock to Conway, yeah, which I was fine with. Man, I loved it. You know, I would have gone every night if I would've, they would have told me to, because that's what felt like home. You know, it's, I mean yeah, you know, It is weird going back home and, and trying to get back into the, after six months of not being there, you know, especially if my kids are two years old now and, you know, all my wife has known as was our history together. And so, you know, it's going to be tough on her too, to kind of reacclimate and learn if she can really trust me, if I'm being honest anymore, or, you know, what's going on, which is totally understandable. Um, so you know it's it's pretty awkward for you know for the first month or so of getting back into it but um, but I loved that I could go back to the ranch for a Bible study whenever I was having trouble you know just acclimating to my new life. You know, I have people I can go talk to, you know counselors and, and staff members that I could sit down and talk to.
0: people that that you knew would understand your story yep. and that had walked with you, not just some random therapist that answered, an eight hundred number somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's what's missing from a lot of our rehabs is that personal touch. You know that you're ju- not just some chart walking around out right. there that that has a number assigned to you. Right. Uh, and, and that's what I really really value about Renewal Ranch is that uh, you aren't just a number; you're an individual. Right. So you mentioned reacclimating in your home. Um, were there times where you felt like your wife would question your authenticity. And when that happened, did you react with compassion? Or were there times that it just really aggravated you that you couldn't believe, here I've been gone six months and you don't trust me after all this? Right. Yeah.
1: No, no, I was completely prepared for for a lack of trust to start with. You know, after a few months— you know, of like, look, you know who I am now. This is how it's going now. You know, she would, she could always spot my pupils from across the room. You know, whenever I was in my addiction, I'd walk in the house and she could see that you know, my pupils were pinpoint. And so, you know, after a few months, I'd come in and, uh, after being clean and you know, living there for a few months, I'd come in and she like, let me see your eyes, and that was always let me see your eyes, let me see your eyes. Mm-hmm. And I always knew I was in trouble then, and so, but I'd I'd made that you know kind of promise to myself that. You know, I'm going to understand this because, good lord, the hell I've put this girl through. You know, so I'm going to understand. I'm going to be con- consistently understanding as long as it needs to be. And so, you know, I, I I I think she would even say I did, you know, pretty well with that. And, say, and I the get fact it. that she did
0: stay. Yeah, exactly. When There's she should have been gone. a lot of a women that times. Would do that. Yeah.
1: yeah, she should have been gone a lot. Mm.
0: She stayed, and so yeah. So, how do you deal with? Uh, and I'm going to just assume textbook. How do you deal with the urges today after recovery?
1: I don't have any anymore. I mean, I never. Um, I had a few, you know, uh, obviously for the first six months, it, it's tough, man. You're, you're retraining your brain and, and the physical Symptoms are still there, and, you know, they'll kick in every once in a while and you'll get the itch and, but, you know, it's easy there because you got guys, you, especially at the ranch, even if you took off running, you're, it's going to be a long time where you get anywhere in public. Mm. Um, because it really
0: is out in the middle yeah, of nowhere. it's in the
1: middle of nowhere. Yeah. And same thing for John 316. It's out there in Batesville, just out in the middle. I mean, you would, you'd be gone for days on on foot trying mm-hmm. to get to a payphone or something. Um, What's that? <laughs> yeah, trying to get to Walmart <laughs> Yeah, and use their phone. It was easy the first six months, but or I'm sorry, hard the first six months. It got easier uh, after that, but man, after after a year of it, a year and a half, after a year and a half, I've just, I've never even considered it. I never, it's just, it is, I've been given a new life. And when I think back on that, it's like looking back on somebody else's life, you know, just it's insane. The stuff that I would think, the stuff that I would do, you know, it's just, it's insane. I can't believe that that was me that did all that.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you come to terms with that wasn't you that did all of that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you tell yourself a lot of stuff, but uh, of course I'm ash- I'm ashamed of, of some of the things I, I did, but I don't hold on to it anymore. Um, you know, what's the point of that? Just, you're wasting a lot of energy and time. And I've been forgiven. Um, you know, my family's forgiven me. So I, I'm just not going to hold on to it anymore.
0: Gotcha. So you've been sober, did you say four? Um, be four years on June or July 18th. In that that four years of sobriety, what would happen if tomorrow, and I don't know that you still play basketball.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> played but, last night.
0: Uh, so what would happen if That same type of injury took place, and now you're going into a surgery, knowing your past. How do you deal with that as a a person who is sober?
1: Ibuprofen. That's it. Um, I've had several injuries. Actually, I think God gave me an injury while I was at the ranch to kind of test my resolve. And I uh, was playing volleyball and rolled an ankle. And limped on it for a few days, and somehow while I was limping on my ankle, just, I guess the muscle in my behind my pelvis just dissolved, and my I had this hip dysplasia kind of thing that started popping. My hip started popping out and laying on my sciatic nerve, and I would miss. I had to miss class. Just go lay on my back in class, and it hurt. And I thought I'd, I thought I'd herniated a disc again. And I said, like, are you kidding Like I finally get clean and now I'm going to have this pain to deal with. But even then, man, like four months in, I was like, well, you know, give me some ibuprofen. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going back, man. Mm-hmm. I'm not going back. And so if I did, I, I, I cut my hand open actually playing basketball and end up with twelve stitches right
0: here. You're to think sports in general <laughs> not, is just uh Yeah not a good idea. Yeah.
1: Uh, I literally pray every time I play, like just it's not a terrible injury tonight. Like <laughs> it's just a small one's fine. Uh, but yeah, I went up there there's ten sheathing behind the basketball goal, and there's this little piece of metal sticking out. So whenever I went up for layup, I, Slammed up against the wall, slammed my hand against it, and just cut cut my hand wide open. So, anyway, I went to the doctor and uh to get it stitched up, and they stitched it up and just kind of ushered me out. I was like, Y'all aren't gonna offer me painkillers, this is really bad. And like, sorry, we're like, No, I just no one's I haven't had the chance to turn down painkillers yet. I was was really excited to come in and you guys offer me some Mm painkillers. So, anyway, I I told her that we started talking, and she was telling me about her. Son is having issues right now with addiction, mm-hmm. and so we started talking about the ranch and she, where she's working right now to get him in the ranch. Great. Which is another reason that I'm just I'm not I'm not holding on to that shame. You know, I'm it's the reason I'm here today. Like I will talk about this all the time to anybody who wants to listen because right. you know I've been delivered from this and. Uh, I, I need other people to know the story so they know that there is a way out.
0: Right. You know, uh, I I say often, everybody has a chapter in their book that they don't want read out loud. But we really can't start to begin that healing process until it's at least read out loud in a therapy office. Right. You know, and once we get to the point of where we can tell our story, I don't think that that true, authentic healing comes to the point of where... I'm not ashamed anymore, uh, and I asked you the question of, can you come to the resolve that that wasn't Neil? And that is, you know, in, in saying that, who you are today is Neil. Mm. Um, that's who your parents knew you growing up was Neil. Those things that you did outside uh, with an addiction really isn't who you are. That's who the addiction morphed you into. Yeah. And if we look at our story like that, it's easier to tell because we we can say hey you know yeah i did those things but that's not who i am and and in that there is there's a lot of comfort uh there so if you could tell anybody struggling with an addiction today anything what would it be
1: to be honest about it and that's that's the biggest thing that's going to keep them there is that shame and hiding that shame and hiding hiding what they're doing i mean listen there's really no rock bottom that's the same for anybody. So unfortunately, especially with addiction, especially with opiates, hitting rock bottom takes not only a lot longer than we like, but a lot more times than we would like. You know, we're going to hit it hundreds and hundreds of times, not just you know more times than we would like, but if, obviously of people who love us. But and it's just there will be a time when you hit rock bottom and and you realize like, how serious this is, and just. Telling somebody, you know, just because I never told anybody until I got arrested. I wasn't planning on telling anybody that, you know, that cared about me, that loved me, that would have done something about it. But, you know, just just opening up and saying that, look, I can't do this by myself. I can't do it. And that's that is that's the first step, because if you're not honest with somebody else, you're never going to be honest with yourself about it. So just just get it out there.
0: And and one thing I heard you say was you were in control. Mm. So if you had it all under control, what was the point of having to tell anybody else? Right, right, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I, Doc Brian, and we thank you for joining us here today on Doc Talks. And now as we go into the second part of this of Doc Talks DX, you'll find that episode on Patreon. Neil, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, I'm thankful that you do uh, and are able to tell your story. So uh, thank you for for being here with us. I, if it's okay with you, in the description of this podcast, I'm going to put uh, Renewal Ranch, list them as a resource, um, yeah, and uh, the National Narcotics Hotline, the National Suicide Prevention Hall, all of that kind of works together. So if they wanted to find Neil Gray, where would they look? I, I mean, I could give them your home address. Yeah, I mean, if you want me to give the address, <laughs> no. we actually
1: we just bought yeah. a house here, so I can give you my yeah. old address. Um, and yeah.
0: I'm I'm at uh,
1: Regeneration. New Life Church has a uh, a recovery ministry that we actually we just launched a couple years ago uh, at the Greater Little Rock Campus in Momel. So I'm there every Thursday night. Um, I, I get to speak there every once in a while. And so that's one of the ministries I work with. I work with you know, the M18 recovery ministry. I, I, I say I work with them and I just I hang out with them. Like I said, these places feel like home to me. And so when there's people with the common struggle that are, are trying to do better about, you know, with their lives and they're hanging around like-minded people, I'm, I'm trying to get in the middle of that. And so uh, L-M-18 recovery is, is a big part of, of my life and my days. Um, I'm at the ranch as often as I can be. So, I mean, just in recovery circles, man, it's amazing how many how many people you start to, to meet when you're in recovery. And, as long as I avoided it, man. Like my most of my closest friends now are, you know, in recovery, and they're, they're part of these ministries or run these ministries, and it's, uh that's kind of the crowds that I run in.
0: Gotcha. Of course, you can find you on Facebook, and I think you're on Instagram too. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah, I've posted uh, like one, one or one or two <laughs> things on Instagram. <laughs> so we'll put those social media links, yeah, uh, also do. in this description. Of course, as I said, Doc Bryan here. You can find me at thedocbryan.com. On Instagram, the underscore doc underscore Brian. Uh, at the bottom of my website, the doc Brian, there's a social media bar there with all of my social media links. Uh, once again, thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. Doc Talks is on the Be Frank Network. Uh, you can find all of our podcasts there at bfranknetwork.com. Once again, thank you for being here with us. Make sure to follow us over to DX on Patreon. And thank you for listening, Neil. Once again, thank you for being here with and us thank today. You.